1: He said, now, if you think I'm wrong, I dare you, you go back to your office, you read that testimony, you tell me I'm wrong. I had accepted the idea that the scientists I was working with, who were skeptics about climate change, were being honest with me.
2: In a culture as politically polarized and aggressively tribalized as ours, how do people change their minds? I'm Georgie Borman, a mother, author, and cultural commentator born and raised on the West Coast. I want to know what we can learn from people who've been on both sides of contentious issues, whether they end up on the right or the left. That's what this podcast is about. Welcome to the 180 Cast.
1: Black Swan events in the climate arena are horrific because there's nothing you can invest in that'll pay out if climate change happens.
2: Hello, welcome back to the 180 cast. I'm your host Georgie Borman. When it comes to climate change and public policy, everybody has questions unless you are on the far, far tribal right or the far, far tribal left and you've already made up your mind that the world is ending or that nothing at all is happening with the climate. And as the summer has drawn to a close when you know alarm about global warming is usually highest because of forest fires and such it, that doesn't necess- that doesn't necessarily make a difference because thousands of publications still continue to crank out content on global warming many of them warning about imminent doom and others denying that there's any issue whatsoever, and it can be really, really confusing. It's confusing even for me if, if I'm admitting it. And then on top of that, we're heading into 2020, and we have a host of Democratic presidential candidates who all have their policy plans and their ideas about what to do uh, to mitigate climate change. And so how are we going to evaluate that as the responsible thinking citizens that we are? So instead of simply accepting one narrative, one narrative or another, as easy as that is, we are going to dig a little bit deeper like we always do on this podcast. You may recall a couple of months ago, Anthony Watts uh, from What's Up With That, which is an enormously popular blog on uh, climate change skepticism, came on the podcast to explain how he flipped on this issue where he used to be a big believer in and global warming and policies to mitigate that. And now he doesn't think that way at all. Well, today we have essentially what's the reverse 180. And I am so happy that we can present this and that we can present both sides so that we can really get a 360 view of the issue from people who have been on both sides. My next guest is a policy analyst and the president of the Niskanen Center, a think tank that works to promote a social order that is open to political, cultural and social change. Prior to founding that, he spent more than two decades at the Cato Institute as director of natural resource studies. And he was also assistant editor of Regulation Magazine. He's been an influential libertarian voice in energy policy in D.C. for the last couple decades, and he's authored numerous studies and testified before Congress. His commentary has appeared in The Washington Post, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, etc. Jerry Taylor, thank you so much for coming on the 180 cast today.
1: Thanks for having me, George. It's good to be on your program.
2: Yes, I'm so excited to have you and uh, pick your brain about how you changed your mind. Before we get started, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so that you don't miss a new episode coming out every Friday. And if you have a friend who might be interested in listening to this episode, go ahead and hit pause and share it with them. And then you have something interesting to talk about. All right, Jerry. Okay, so you used to be a skeptic like a big time skeptic like a libertarian skeptic which is to me it seems like the most extreme kind so can you take me back to that mindset why did you believe what you believe what were your reasons if if somebody was really pressing you like why aren't you on board with this what what would you say
1: Yeah, I I started my career at the Cato Institute in 1991, and for 23 years I was holding up the banner of uh, climate skepticism and opposition to federal policy. And the arguments that I forwarded for most of that period was was that, look, climate change is happening. I, I certainly concede that. Uh, And that industrial emissions and mankind is largely responsible for that warming. So I didn't argue that it was circadas or something like that or magnetic fields or anything of that sort. Uh, But that there's a wide range of possible outcomes from climate change. According to the IPCC, International uh, uh, Governmental Panel on Climate Change, that – the low-end uh, outcome, if we double the background concentration of greenhouse gases, is maybe a 1.5 degrees Celsius warming of uh, global temperature. The high the high, of, high end of the most likely scenario is about 4.5 degrees Celsius of warming from that uh, doubling of background. That's a really big spread. And the argument I made at the time was that all the evidence we had in front of us suggested that warming would be at the very low end of the most likely outcome of climate change as reported by the IPCC. And that if that plays out to be, to be the case, and again, at the time I argued the data was certainly suggesting that would be the case, that climate change would be a modest non-event. Yes, it would be costly, it would cause disruption, but it would be by no means the book of revelations as offered by the environmental lobby. And the cost of doing something about it was staggering. Removing all fossil fuels from the global economy on a forced march uh, would be incredibly disruptive, extremely costly. And if we were going to spend that tens of trillions of dollars to do that, you have to ask yourself whether there's better ways of spending 30 or 40 trillion dollars. And Bjorn uh, Lomborg had made very persuasive arguments to me that if we were to mobilize those kind of resources, there are lots of ways we could spend them to alleviate human suffering and promote human well-being that would do far more than addressing climate change. So that was the argument that uh, I had forwarded for the most of my time at the uh, at the Cato Institute before – I began the process of changing my mind.
2: So how did you begin that process? What first got the the inklings of doubt in your mind? Who who or what seeded that?
1: Well there are a number of things that happened. I didn't change my mind all at once, but probably the first thing that gave me serious pause was an event where I was on television debating a uh, climate scientist by the name of Joe Rome, uh, who's currently at Center for American Progress, but prior to that he was in the Clinton administration, and you know he's been a player on climate policy and, and science for a long time. And I spent a lot of my time on TV and radio and in print and whatnot debating climate actors. And on, on the show, I said, "Look, Joe, it's been more than a decade since uh, James Hansen testified in front of the United States Congress in 1988." in which he argued that if we didn't do something about climate change, we would have extreme increases in temperature and all sorts of uh, increases in extreme weather events. And he offered a projection, I said to Joe, in that testimony, which said if we don't act, this is the temperature increase we're going to see. Uh, and I said, Joe, it's been more than a decade since that testimony. We can go back and look and see how accurate uh, uh, Professor Hansen was. And It turns out we've only seen about a quarter to a third of the warming that he says we should have seen by now. I said, Joe, that tells me the models run hot. It tells me that the climate is not as sensitive to greenhouse gases as uh, Hansen had believed they were, as your community tells us the uh, atmosphere is. And if those trends continue, and there's a lot of good reasons to think they will, then uh, climate change is simply not going to be that big of a story. So anyway, we got done with the TV program, went into the green room where they take off the microphone and uh, you know makeup and whatnot. And and Joe said, Look, Jerry, let me ask you a question. Did you even read James Hansen's testimony? Uh, That you were mangling on the air just now. And I said, it's been a while, Joe. But yeah. Uh, But a colleague of mine had recently given this testimony for the United States Senate, which was pretty much along the lines of what I just offered on TV. And Joe said, let me explain something about that testimony. He said, if you were to go back and look at it, you'd find that what you said, strictly speaking, was true. He gave a business-as-usual scenario where he projected emissions over the next you know, several decades, and he projected temperature. And you're right. We haven't seen the temperature increases that uh, he expected us to see under a business-as-usual scenario. He said, but, Jerry, if you look closer, you'll see the reason for that is that he thought there'd be far greater emissions of greenhouse gases than we've seen. He gave that testimony before the Montreal Protocol which banned a lot of very uh, potent greenhouse gases from, the, uh, uh, from manufacture, uh, a global treaty to remove them from uh, uh, modern, modern industrial uh, uh, consumption. And he said, we've also had a number of different other events like the like uh, recession in the early 90s, the emergence of natural gas, which reduced greenhouse gas emissions. And it turns out, Jerry, he said, we didn't see that warming largely because we didn't see those emissions. He says, you can tell that's true because he also gave a couple of other projections you didn't mention. And what I'm talking about was scenario A. So but he gave scenario B in which he hypothesized a lower emissions profile. One, Jerry, he said, if you go back and look, it's pretty much the emissions profile we've had since 1980. So, you know, it's pretty accurate. And he ran a computer projection uh, regarding what temperature increases would be under that scenario. He said, and Jerry, it's spot on. He said, so when you come on television and you say that the models run hot and this sort of that, he says, notice it takes me about 10 minutes to explain why that argument's bad. He said, you can, you can criticize James Hansen for not being a good prognosticator about industrial emissions like that, which is not his business, right? He's a climate scientist and economist. He said, but it's wrong to say his models run hot. It's wrong to say that the data suggests the climate is not as sensitive to greenhouse gases, as you just said on the air. He said, which is why I hate debating people like you on TV, because you're a bunch of uh, you're a bunch of frauds and charlatans. He said, now, if you think I'm wrong, I dare you. You go back to your office. You read that testimony. You tell me I'm wrong. He says, otherwise, I really don't want to ever debate you again in public because it's just too frustrating to see this kind of mendacity. Well, (laughs) that's a heck of a challenge. So I went back to my office and, uh, you know, this is 2003, 2004. The Internet's not what it is today, but it was still there. So it was easy to pop up that testimony and read it. And and it seemed as if he was right. And so I went down the hallway to what my colleague at the Cato Institute who had recently given that testimony in front of the United States Senate, telling the narrative that I had just told on TV that had just been criticized by Joe Rome. And I asked my colleague, you know, I told my colleague what had just happened on the air, and I said, look, you know, I just finished reading the testimony. And it seems to me like Joe's right. So what am I missing out of this story? I'm assuming I'm missing something. And it turns out for 20 minutes, this climate scientist uh, was basically conceding that everything that uh, Joe had just said was correct, but what difference does it make? And he said, Jerry, look, did, uh, did James Hansen go in front of the Senate and say that if we do nothing, we're going to see warming of X? Yes or no? And I said, yeah. He said, and have we seen warming of X? And I said, no. We've only seen about a quarter of that, right? And I said, yeah. And he goes, QED, what's this debate about? I'm like, uh, maybe he's missing something, what I just said. So I walked through the story again. And it turned out that he was giving no ground whatsoever and finally in frustration conceded after about 20 or 30 minutes that the narrative he offered – uh, was subject to interpretation, but he's not James Hansen's attorney, and let James Hansen sort all this out. It's not his job to do that. In other words, it's not his job to have an honest discussion of the position or the projections made by the other side. Ouch! And that was, you know, that that really rattled me because I had uh, accepted, uh, I had, I had accepted the idea that the scientists I was working with, who were skeptics, skeptics about climate change. Were being honest with me, and that they were they were giving me a straight story about you know the nature of the debate, and I could no longer trust that to be true. And so what what I began to do was the due diligence I should have been doing in the first place. I mean, it's all it's it's human nature to be a lot more skeptical about arguments you don't want to believe than to than to provide that same degree of skepticism and due diligence to arguments you do want to believe. And as I began that process, I found that the story I just told you, Georgie, was was playing out again and again and again and again and again from climate scientists on my side of the debate. They weren't always being purposefully mendacious like this. Sometimes they were just cherry picking data. Sometimes they were publishing things in non-peer reviewed sources that were getting shot up by uh, other people in the field. Sometimes they were misrepresenting studies. Sometimes they were ignoring, uh, you know, rafts of evidence which would uh, call into question uh, statements or conclusions they were making. They weren't even acknowledging these were controversial issues, and they were hotly controversial. And so I got to the point where I, I didn't feel like I was I could comfortably trust people on my side of the debate to be capable and honest. And and that was not the only thing that caused me to change my mind, but it was the first major a series of events that caused me to uh, rethink my priors.
2: It's a big responsibility to be in a position as you are and as your colleagues are to inform the public about something as big as climate change. Like when I write stories and I'm writing something that's really controversial, it, it puts knots in my stomach. I'm like, what if I get this wrong? I'm doing people such a disservice if I get this wrong. Did you feel, was there like an anxiety about that? I mean, you said that rattled you, but were were you sure that the people on your side were the ones who were being mendacious and the ones on the other side were being primarily truthful?
1: Well, what I was engaged in at Cato, unlike a lot of people in the policy debate, was not simply to uh, preach to the choir or to serve up ammunition for people who already agreed with me or to compete to be the best table pounder out of an arena of 10 or 20 table pounders that could go on Fox News. My ambition was actually to argue and win against people who disagree with me in public forums so that those who disagreed with me would appreciate the power of the argument that I was forwarding about, uh, against climate action. So, and, and in most of the policy world, that's not what people do. And uh, so that was one serious problem, uh, and, and it's one reason why I don't didn't spend a lot of time dealing with obviously uh, uh, mendacious people on the left, because I was trying to debate the best and the brightest out there, people like Joe Rome, people like Carl Pope, used to run the Sierra Club, people like Joe Pascatando used to run Greenpeace. <laughs> I'm not saying there aren't people uh, who, who might engage in these kind of tactics on the left. It's just that I wasn't encountering them because I was trying to take on the best of the other side and the best of the other side don't do that. Um, so that was a problem. But, yeah, Georgie, I completely uh, appreciate the knots in your stomach because at the, and when you work in a think tank like the Cato Institute or the Heritage Foundation or AEI or, you know, one of the big think tanks, You have a lot of public intellectuals who aren't experts in a policy area like Rich Lowry at National Review or George Will, when you know, as a columnist at The Post. And if they're going to write on a topic, it was fairly common for them to give me a call and say, look, you know, I want to tackle this new report, you know, on uh, climate change. And, you know, what do we think of this? Or, you know, I want to argue that. How solid is this? They're basically parking their uh, trust in me and people like me to positively inform what they're putting out in much bigger venues than uh, where I am. And so, in other words, they're trusting me to get it right for them. And I, in turn, was trusting a lot of these climate scientists to get it right for me. And if George Will or Rich Lowry or people like that offer then a climate argument that is shot full of holes and that uh, is too wobbly to withstand even cursory examination of people who actually know this business, then that humiliates them, which in turn humiliates me, and it reduces the chances I'm going to get calls, or at least so I thought, from people like that again. So, yeah, there's a lot of responsibility you have in the policy arena, especially the more, uh, uh, the, the more elevated your platform, like the platform I had at the Cato Institute.
2: So when you started to change your mind, or at least have more doubts what did that do with your relationship with the people that you had been working with to this point?
1: Well, I, I, I tried to minimize my relationship with climate scientists in the skeptic camp, because I could no longer trust them to do good work or fairly or uh, honestly represent the debate. So I shifted to economic arguments, uh, which I thought it was on far firmer ground. In other words, even if you accept mainstream narratives about climate change, the cost of doing something about climate change are greater than the cost of letting it play out. And that argument had some merit to it back in the 1990s and early to mid-2000s, but that argument began to fall apart too, for a lot of reasons. One, we became aware of higher and higher costs that were likely to follow from climate change, especially if you start Working in some of the low, the low probability, high impact scenarios that could play out, and the costs of low carbon energy, fossil fuel alternatives, crashed. I mean, you could argue back in the 1990s when I started at Cato that wind and solar uh, is simply no in no position to replace fossil fuels without massive costs. But by the 2000s, it was playing out. You know, green energy just you know really took off, and production costs just plummeted. It got to the point, Georgie, when quite literally, and this is not, it, not at all an exaggeration, that I could not find a credentialed economist who published in the peer-reviewed climate literature who argued against things like a carbon tax or cap and trade. Not a single one. There had been economists I could identify who would oppose climate action in the early days, but I got to the point there were none I could identify who who published in that literature uh, by the mid to late 2000s. And that's a pretty big deal. I mean, the Cato Institute, like a lot of other think tanks, are in the business of marshalling expertise. Sure, I could find a guy who's got, you know, the, the, uh, the, the, chair, the chair in entrepreneurship and free market economics at Appalachian State College. He's got a PhD in economics who's going to, you know, opine about the evils of uh, climate action, but they don't publish in their peer review literature. This isn't a specialty of theirs. It's no more than an elevated op-ed. But when you're talking about people like, say, uh, Bill Nordhaus from Yale or Richard Tall or other prominent climate economists who had in the past been relatively skeptical about aggressive climate action, and you see them all, you know, exit stage left and say, no, it's gotten to the point where you just can't make that argument anymore. You know, that that's, that's, that's should tell you something. You, If you can't find a single person, a single person in academia who's got some qualification in this area to take your point, then you're probably in a pretty bad position, that's what I found myself in as I was playing out the economic arguments as well.
2: So you found out there were, there were people who came before you who had already changed their minds, and that gave you some amount of assurance that you were on the right track?
1: Yeah, and, and in fact, uh, and a paper that came out around 2000, and, uh, in the late 2000s, uh, was exactly a, a something like that. There's a fellow named Jonathan Adler who used to uh, be the director of environmental policy at the competitive enterprise institute which is still a you know a loud voice for climate denialism slash skepticism but and then that that day in the day that i knew him when i was at cato he was my counterpart at cei and you know he was a climate skeptic as well but he left cei went into uh, went into law school uh got a phd now teaches at case western university and uh, he published a paper in the late 2000s which are which really got my attention he said look even if Even if climate skeptics, you know, like at the Cato Institute and elsewhere, are correct, what does that have to do uh, with the case against climate action if you're a libertarian? You know, Jonathan argued, look, libertarians are not in the business, have never been in the business, saying property rights are negotiable depending upon how much money you can make by messing with them. He said, so even if it's the case that, you know, producing fossil fuels has, you know, creates a lot of jobs and economic income— if Party A polluters are de- uh, 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 are destroying the property of Party B, you know other people, then it doesn't matter that A makes a lot of money at destroying your property. A cost-benefit analysis, even if it could hold up, does not full stop a conversation against uh, a, a, a full stop a conversation against doing something about climate change even if that cost-benefit analysis could hold up. Now, as I mentioned to you, I couldn't find an economist who would, uh, a credible economist who'd make that cost-benefit argument anymore. But Jonathan, you said, even if it's correct, you can make it. Libertarians shouldn't be impressed by it. Now, there are, you know, there's a space to be a utilitarian on this and say, yeah, I am going to weigh cost-benefits. You don't have to be all ideological libertarians. But it really made an impression on me, because it's, at that time I was still an extremely uh, uh, principled, hard-line libertarian. And I thought I'd never thought of it that way before. And so I started uh, reaching out to some friends of mine in the libertarian world. And I said, look, have you seen this paper from Jonathan Adler that just came out? I'm wondering what you and Like, yeah, I saw it. And what do you think about it? And it turns out it's kind of like if somebody was asking the pope several centuries ago, if they had seen that encyclical written by that guy, Martin Luther. And what do you think about it? They don't want to talk about it because there's really no good principled answer to that. Uh, and that really rattled me. I mean, Adler has now changed his mind like I have about the uh, significance of climate change. But he offered another argument against, you know, the easy arguments about, oh, it's going to cost jobs to do something about climate change, blah, blah, blah. And he says, if you're a libertarian, that should not be either here nor there, because we're in the business of protecting property rights, uh, full stop. Not qualified, and it doesn't matter whether those property rights are being destroyed by an oil and gas company, or whether they're being destroyed by, you know a real estate developer, or whether they're being destroyed by government. Uh, and I thought that was a very powerful argument.:
2: What I'm seeing here, I do have to ask a question about that, because that is a very powerful argument that I have heard before. but my question coming from the right a skeptical question is, where do you stop? Because if you say this is justified under climate change, when the science, as you yourself have said before, is rather ambiguous and there's a wide range of potential effects, is that, I mean, what else can you justify on that ground saying there's a very small percentage chance that New York is going to be 10 feet underwater, you know, by 2050 or something like that? And therefore, we're going to confiscate 80 percent of your wealth and and put that toward climate change policy.
1: Yeah, that's a really good question, Georgie. And that was the last thing that uh, uh, that was the last nail in the coffin of of my uh, belief in climate skepticism, Um, because what what what. When liberals traffic in that argument, they're often trafficking in something called the precautionary principle, which is that if there's even a small chance that, you know, uh, uh, radiation from a nuclear power plant can cause cancer or even a small chance that, uh, uh, you know, some disastrous thing might happen if we allow for uh, genetically modified organisms in agriculture or, you know, consuming fossil fuels causing catastrophic climate change, that we shouldn't entertain those risks. We should be, we should err on the side of, of great risk aversion. And I've never been persuaded by those arguments. That's not the argument that I'm making here, but it's an argument that I have heard oftentimes on the left. Um, But there is a different way of looking at it, which is just, you know, the profession of risk management. The idea is that there's a wide distribution of possible outcomes uh, associated with a lot of things in life. And we're not absolutely certain what the most likely outcome is. And even when we think we know what the most likely outcome is, we don't base our behavior uh, on a response to that most likely outcome. So, for instance, we know that if I've got a, a chunk of money, say, you know, $50,000 I want to invest in this year or 20000 or 10000 or five hundred. I know what the, most, the, the best investment will most likely be for that money, right? I'm going to put it all in stocks because historically – Equities have returned better than anything else in the American economy. So we know that the most likely, the best, and most likely outcome of my investment decision is going to be that I'll maximize my profits by parking all my money in stocks. Do people do that in financial markets? No, they don't. Virtually nobody does that. The reason they don't is that, well, they realize that's the best, most likely play to maximize their dollars. But there's a lot of things that can happen in the economy, and so we hedge our bets. We know that recessions come and go. We know that depressions can even happen. Uh, we know there's a lot of churn in markets. And so we, we buy uh, bonds. We buy uh, various other financial instruments to reduce risk. There's virtually nobody who would invest based on the most likely outcome from a scenario. That's called risk management. And, and the final conversation I had, which moved me, was with a guy named Bob Litterman, who was the first quant on Wall Street. He was the, risk, he was the director of risk management at Goldman Sachs. He was well-known within academia as one of the smartest and uh, most revolutionary thinkers about economic risk management in the world. And he came to see me near the end of my time at Cato, and he made exactly this point. He said, Jerry, because he's, he's concerned about climate change, he said, You're in a hot debate with environmentalists about the most likely outcome from climate change. You say it'll be on the low end of possible outcomes. They say it'll be on the high end of possible outcomes. And then you're, you know, you fight uh, like grim death to prove who's right, who's wrong. So that's the wrong way of looking at this. He said climate risks are not unlike a lot of risks I deal with at Goldman Sachs. So there's a wide range of possible outcomes. Some are relatively modest. Others are end of the world sci-fi stuff. And there's a lot in between. And in risk management, what we do at Goldman Sachs is we weight as best we can the pos- probability of these of, of each of these outcomes playing out. And then we weigh them together in a ca- calculation about, you know, what's the, what's the most efficient use of our cash? He said so the difference is, is that we have a pretty good idea about the um, uh, possible outcomes of any investment, you know, in the economy in every given year because we've got a lot of data He said, in climate, we don't have a lot of data because we have never before run this experiment with the atmosphere. We have never before loaded up this much greenhouse gas in the atmosphere and hit these kind of concentration levels. The last time we've seen these kind of high levels of greenhouse gas concentration in the atmosphere were long before mankind ever emerged on planet Earth. And it's hard for us to piece together information from those days. To the extent to which we can, we know that we're in for hellscape. So- we have much less data to go on. He said, so what do we do with that? You your guys say, well, we, since we don't have a lot of data, we can't act. He said, actually, at Goldman Sachs, when we were dealing with investments where we had less data, we were more risk averse. He said the reason we were more risk averse is that uncertainty and lack of data makes, creates bigger spaces for black swan events. And he said and black swan events in the climate arena are horrific because there's nothing you can invest in that'll pay off if climate change happens. You can't hedge against it. We don't have other planets. The cost of removing greenhouse gases from the atmosphere is staggeringly high, and under that scenario, it seems to me that there's a reason why every single credentialed economist says we have to act aggressively and have to act now. He says you don't have to be a, a Greenpeace member to come to that conclusion. You don't have to be a leftist. You just have to be a risk manager as you would be a risk manager if you were doing with assets in another part of your life. And I thought that argument was extremely profound because we had just got done making exactly those arguments in foreign policy, right? We know the most likely outcome of, say, Iran getting a nuclear weapon or North Korea having an intercontinental ballistic missile that can deliver nuclear warheads is that they won't use them. That's the most likely outcome. But there's not the only outcome. And even the small chance that they would use them, or exercise that kind of leverage is what animates American foreign policy to put a stop to it. Now, I'm not arguing for John Bolton-like foreign policy here, but what I am saying is that conservatives and libertarians understand that risk management argument that I'm making because they accept that risk management argument in other contexts without much second thought. It's just when we get to climate change that, you know, they resist thinking uh, of, uh, of the issue in the same way they think about it, where it called something else.
2: How would you respond to the argument that no matter how aggressive we are on the policy front, it will not do enough to undo what you and many others see as the damage that is already done? In other words, it doesn't matter how hard you try, you can't push this car back up the hill again.
1: Well, it's a good observation. Uh, There was an essay By Jonathan Franzen and the New Yorker uh, last weekend, they got a lot of uh, attention in the environmental community for making essentially that argument that it was too late. Uh, You know, the ship has already sailed here. We're going to have climate hellscape no matter what we do. Now the question is how we're going to manage it. Uh, And I think that argument is in in his essay was a bit overstated, but it's not entirely wrong. We are going to have significant climate change in our lifetime. We're already seeing a play out in our lifetime. And, you know, so we're not going to, quote, stop climate change. But what we can do is reduce the odds of it having cataclysmic impact because it could. Uh, There's a lot of uncertainty and there are a lot of tail uh, uh, fat tailed uh, uh, outcomes uh, that we might see from climate change. And we don't want to play those risks. And there's a world of difference between a planet that warms by two or two and a half degrees Celsius and a planet which warms by four and a half degrees Celsius. There's a massive difference, and it's within our power right now to decide how far this uh, warming uh, goes. Um, So your point's well taken, but it doesn't imply that, therefore, we should just shrug our shoulders and uh, and just watch the earth fry, because how hot it gets and what the impacts are going to be are still largely in our control.
2: How about what I'm thinking now is if he's right that the quote-unquote hellscape is inevitable, wouldn't the money that we would put toward reducing greenhouse gases be better spent on technology and maybe social programs that would help us adapt to a changing climate? Why, not, why, why, why can't we just roll with it, in other words?
1: The cost, the cost of letting climate change play out and simply spending money to adapt to it are far greater than the cost of reducing greenhouse gas emissions right now to minimize the uh, extent of future warming. And on that, there's virtually no economic disagreement. Everyone who has published the peer-reviewed literature, conservatives, liberals, Republicans, Democrats, all come to that conclusion. So it's not the optimal strategy. But it's certainly true that adaptation will have to occur. Climate change is happening right now. The planet is warming right now. Uh, we're seeing its impacts right now. It's causing damage right now, and we are forced to adapt to it. So it's absolutely true that we have to pay attention to adaptation. Uh, but it, if it can't be the main uh, line response to climate change, it'd be a lot cheaper to just start reducing emissions, particularly since alternative fossil fuels today are about as, are, are no more expensive than our fossil fuels. It just takes a long time to switch out the infrastructure. So it's perfectly within our power to do this. Uh, And then secondly, a lot of the the, uh, adaptation is just beyond us. I mean, if you get events, you know, low probability, high impact scenarios where we have, you know, evidence that these things may be playing out, like, for instance, uh, a shifting in the uh, pattern of the jet stream in the Northern Atlantic, there's just not a whole lot Europe's going to be able to do to manage that. They are going to be hammered. And so adaptation needs to be part of the conversation. And we are seeing adaptation expenditures now. We'll see even more of them in the future. Uh, but it's not the the best answer uh, as far as our response to climate change. It is it is certainly, however, a part of our answer.
2: Are, is your faith, I mean, for lack of a better word, is your belief in the impact of climate change mostly based off of what you see as the evidence playing out today as you just spoke of or is it the accuracy of some of the models you've seen for instance the expert who testified before congress back in 1988 who had a scenario that was correct and in terms of increasing um, co2 emissions i mean what is most convincing to you out of those
1: Actually, neither. Uh, the most convincing evidence I've seen is the paleoclimate data. I mean, one thing that frustrates me in this debate, and I mean, I, and I was on the other side, right? So I, I, I'm utterly, I'm totally familiar with the talking points against climate action because I used to write them all. And one of the representations on the right about climate action that is really frustrating to me today is that it's all about speculative climate models, which are inaccurate. And they are not, you know, <laughs> there are a lot of uncertainties in climate models. And, there, and you, I, you couldn't take them to the bank largely because a lot of uncertainties about how the climate actually responds to different things. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of uncertainties because there's a lot of uncertainties in our own knowledge base about how the atmosphere works. Um, so it's not a reflection of, you know, uh, uh, dodgy, poorly educated climate modelers. It's they're doing the best they can with, with uh, lack of full knowledge and appreciation about climate dynamics. But the thing that, the thing is, is that there are at least six or seven lines of evidence to suggest we need to be worried about climate change. It's not just the computer models. We know fundamentally of, uh, for over a century now that if, at, if fundamental physics are correct, the loading of greenhouse gases will indeed at heat the planet in a significant fashion. This is something ExxonMobil has known for about 50 years now. I mean, that's that's no mystery. So basic physics itself should tell you we need to worry about this. The climate models are just trying to get precise about, you know, exactly what that temperature rise is going to look like, not whether it's going to occur. Uh, And, of course, the extreme weather events we're seeing play out are utterly consistent with the kind of things we're going to see more and more of as the climate, climate warms. And if we weren't seeing them, it would give me pause, but we are seeing. But the most powerful evidence is really none of that. However, uh, it's the uh, arguments from paleoclimate uh, scientists that go back and look at what the world looked like when atmospheric concentrations of greenhouse gases were at present levels and future projected levels, because we weren't here at the time. But we have sophisticated means of uh, of uh, measuring both atmospheric concentrations of greenhouse gases temperature and climate conditions by looking at uh, ice cores and tree rings and things like that. And what they find when they do that exercise is that when the earth eventually, and it takes centuries to adjust, I mean, this isn't going to happen overnight, but the last time the earth had today's levels of greenhouse gases in its atmosphere, over the course of several centuries after the earth finally adjusted to that concentration, there was no ice uh, in the Arctic. Uh, sea levels were about sixty feet higher than they were than they are today at present. And we had camels in Canada and <laughs> in, in, in northern Siberia. I mean, so there's a mountain of evidence from those who can look back at the few times we've seen these concentrations and it makes their hair stand up. So there's there's so many different lines of evidence to suggest that we need to be worried about climate change. It's not just the climate models. It's not just you know watching uh, uh, what happens with extreme weather events today. It's not just the at- fundamental physics, and it's not just the paleoclimate data. They all point in the same direction, and that's what's really alarming.
2: I want to push on just one point because I know you can take it, and that is from the. From some of the skeptics that I've heard from, their issue isn't with not having enough evidence per se, or not enough assurances per se within the data, like not having enough data is what I'm trying to say, but rather that some of the data that they do have is being mishandled or concealed. For instance, the... Uh, the heat islands is I think is how they refer to it of cities that are just massive blobs of concrete basically that hold in a lot of heat. And then they have a thermometer right down there in the middle of an urban area. And they say, look, Oh my gosh, the temperature has warmed so much over the past 50, 60, 70 years. We got to do something about this. And then when you look just a little bit further out in a more rural area where there's also a thermometer, that doesn't show the same warming. So I think that from their perspective, it's not so much about not having enough data. It's about how we're handling the data that we have. What do you think?
1: Yeah, that's a pretty common argument on the right. And it, it's wrong in a couple of senses. First of all, the, uh, the data is adjusted to take into account the urban heat island effect. So we don't just report raw data. They are adjusted to account for changing locations of thermostats on the ground and also the buildup of urban uh, 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 facilities and infrastructure around the thermostats. And they do then adjust the temperature data to account for those things. The debate isn't that they're not doing it. The debate is that they don't do it as much as, say, climate skeptics think they should. Um, The second problem with that argument is that it implies that outside of urban areas we're seeing less warming uh, than then you would expect us to see if mainstream climate science were correct. That's just not true. We're seeing the same degree of warming that we'd expect to see in, in uh, rural parts of the globe uh, as we are in urban areas of the globe. You can see it in Africa and Asia, which are not all that built up like they are in uh, advanced Western democracies. And uh, third of all, it, it, this was exactly the reason why uh, Berkeley Earth Science got into the business, uh, which was, you know, the, the, background on, uh, on that is a prominent physicist from, uh, UCAL Berkeley, uh, was somewhat skeptical about the temperature data surrounding climate change and the reports from the IPCC. And, uh, and his, and he was, he's a very famous skeptic, uh, physicist. And he was then, uh, given research money by Charles Koch, who is a you a know, prominent climate skeptic, uh, to investigate the, uh, the temperature basis that was going into these uh, reports from the IPCC, and this physicist used that uh, research money and built up an extremely impressive database and analytic capability it is now the work the work that comes out of, uh, of Berkeley Earth is now thought to be gold standard on uh, on ground based temperature data, and he found that no actually. <laughs> Uh, the data uh, is reporting the warming that uh, its representatives reporting. There's nothing wrong with it. And if you go to his website, he walks you through quite transparently exactly how they adjust the data to account for things like the urban heat island effect and the changing location of thermometers and why they make the adjustments they make and the defenses for those adjustments. And it's all transparent. You can go there and criticize it or not. Um, and so – if you look in the literature, like, all right, so what criticisms have the climate skeptics offered at Berkeley Earth? They're just not there. They're not coherent. They're not published in peer-reviewed journals. So this is another example of, you know, something that if it were true would certainly be a, you know, a pretty powerful rebuttal point. But it's a misrepresentation of both the data and the uh, information that goes into these uh, these calculations.
2: Interesting. What about the Difference that is also claimed between all of the ground data and the satellite data.
1: You know, that's interesting as well, because satellite data is thought by laymen to be more accurate because it's, you know, less subject to urban heat island effects and things like that. But actually, there are greater error bars around the satellite data than the ground based data. Uh, because uh, the the change in satellite drift has really messed with these numbers in the past. We don't have a lot of of data to go by. We have satellite data going all the way back only to 1979. So it's not like we have a very robust data set. And what's also interesting is that it's not as if we have a lot of different uh, lines of data here and reports. What we have are a very limited set of data, scientists working off that data, Nine scientists out of 10 who deal with the satellite data find it absolutely consistent with mainstream narratives about global warming and perfectly consistent with the story of the uh, warming we've seen up to this point that comes out of the IPCC. And only two scientists that I'm aware of who are credentialed here who look at that data and see something different. That's John Christie and Roy Spencer, two scientists I had worked with to some extent when I was at the Cato Institute. So if you look at this debate between those who are dealing with the satellite data, you find that the vast majority of that community is on one side of this debate and John Christie and Roy Spencer are on the other. And that's pretty much it. Two guys spitting in the wind and they could be right. I mean, it's not like science is a show of hands, but this is a bit of a complicated issue. You can find we've written quite a bit about it in the scanning center. We don't think that analysis of theirs matches up very well at all. It's not consistent. We don't think the analysis has been very good. Uh, And we're convinced by the uh, people dealing with the satellite data in the mainstream community, which is, you know, showing our lines of uh, warming that are perfectly consistent with mainstream narratives.
2: Okay, so accepting the premise that the climate is heating up. Isn't the private sector better suited to handle this than throwing money at the government and saying, help us do something? Yeah, largely I agree with that,
1: um, and that's why we support a carbon tax at the Niskanen Center. If you get price signals correct, if, in other words, the price of consuming fossil fuels reflects the cost of consuming fossil fuels, which include its environmental impacts, if you get those prices right, and then for the most part step back, there are other things we'll probably have to do, but if we simply get the prices correct and leave it to manufacturers, producers, and consumers – Decide how to cut back emissions, when they want to cut back emissions and fossil fuel consumption, uh, on what time scales they want to do it. And do they want to do it by, you know, more energy efficiency in their house and more efficient cars? Or do they want to do it by switching from, uh, 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 from coal and natural gas to nuclear power or wind power or solar power or something else? Just leave all those decisions to the market and let the price signal guide the decisions of producers and consumers that would be a lot more efficient and a lot less costly than tasking the EPA or a democratic administration to regulate every nook and cranny of the american economy to tell us what kind of energy to use when we can use it and what kind of technologies we can use to harness it that is a nightmare regulatory scenario which is going to have excessively high costs uh, and it's not going to be very efficient so yeah i agree with you completely capitalism and capital uh, capitalism can solve this problem but it can 't solve the problem if prices are dishonest. I mean that 's the core of Friedrich Hayek and Milton Friedman 's arguments against socialism. No matter what you think about the power of central planning, socialist economies can 't work because the price signals do not accurately reflect underlying realities in the economy, and that 's the problem we have right now with fossil fuel prices. They don 't reflect the underlying reality, the cost of fossil fuels. We are subsidizing their use. So it's no surprise that we're using more than is optimal.
2: Climate skeptics also say, so I'm going to throw another objection at you because you are handling these so deftly um, that because so much of the data is coming out of the government and there's a lot of government funding that goes toward climate science, particularly toward the idea that we're in a crisis and so we're in crisis mode, that there are perverse incentives at work to manipulate the data and just fiddle with it a little bit here, a little bit there, to make it consistent with previous predictions that all say that we are heading toward um, a hellscape. Do you think, because, you know, you're a proponent of capitalism and the private sector. Do you? Th- you're, you're skeptical of, of government action. Do you think that there's some of that going on?
1: Well, this is a, this is a, a, a very common talking point as well. It's a very good question. First of all, as I mentioned, Berkeley Earth, which is uh, which was uh, founded and directed by Robert Muller, the physicist in question from UCal Berkeley. Was entirely a private undertaking funded by Charles Koch and climate skeptic Cash, and it produced a conclusion which was inconvenient to Charles Koch. To his credit, Charles let Richard Muller and Berkeley Earth report its findings without constraint. So the idea that only those toting up to government contracts are uh, reporting climate uh, uh, narratives that are uncomfortable to conservatives is just not true. I mean. You know, Dick Mueller could have easily maximized his relationship with Charles Koch, and you know, by reporting something else, but he reported the truth. Um,
2: So, if it weren't for if it weren't for Mueller's work, would you still be as comfortable with the with the data?
1: Well, yeah, because the data is available for any to take a look at and kick around. It's not like Mueller was the first guy who, uh, who ever looked under the hood. He just did it with a ver- he just did it with a very skeptical lens and a lot of support to just get another line of uh, of examination in there uh, for uh, uh, for people like Charles Koch. But you know, in the peer review literature, that's what the peer review literature is, right? The work that is being done is utterly transparent. Uh, you can see the underlying assumptions and the numbers and the modeling for yourself. It's all right there. It's not like this is secret sauce stuff. But, you know, so one, the idea that there's, a you know, there's a uh, a lot of dark knowledge out there that's unexaminable out uh, by mainstream people is just not true. But secondly, let's talk about, you know, the incentive issue. Because, you know, this is something that really bothered me when I was at the Cato Institute. Because this was an argument that a number of my colleagues had been making at the time. And they said, look, you know, if you're getting government contracts, you're incentivized to produce answers the government wants to hear. Well, first of all, again, I'm not entirely sure that's true, particularly since right now Donald Trump is in the White House. uh, Money coming out of uh, the executive branch is coming out of, uh, you know, an executive branch uh, with a big MAGA hat on it. And it's not like climate scientists are now toting up to Republicans with their with their publications, are they? No, they're not. Uh, But even put that aside, if it's true that dollars incentivize you to agree with those who are cutting the checks, then why am I listening to a single climate skeptic? Because every last one of them are getting money from the oil or coal industries. Now, that to me doesn't disqualify their work. It doesn't really matter who's paying the bills as long as the arguments can stand or fall on their own. But it's really rich to hear this from the right. I mean, do they look at uh, arguments and studies and analyses which were underwritten by the business community and say, well, you know, of course they're going to say that they're incentivized to do it because, you know, he who uh, uh, plays the fiddle calls the tune. No, they don't. It doesn't bother them the slightest. I mean, you would think that would, if that, if that argument held up, then they would be equally skeptical about the information they're getting from their allies and they're not.
2: What do you think are the biggest things holding conservatives back from embracing a carbon tax? Is it their understanding of the science or is it not wanting to be taxed or something else?
1: You know, it really depends. I mean, I don't want to be sweeping about this and say, well, every single last conservative opposes to a carbon tax does it for reasons X, Y and Z at this at the following uh, proportions, because that would you know, that's a generalization you can't make. But I can tell you that uh, I know how I felt when I was a climate skeptic. It was driving my underlying reluctance to accept these narratives and what I've seen from the right over that time. First of all, if you're, going to, if you're going to embrace a carbon tax to address climate change, here's a couple of things you're doing as a conservative. One, you're admitting Al Gore was right. How many conservatives want to do that? How many people want it on the right or anybody? I mean, nobody on the left wants to admit Ronald Reagan was right about something either. But you have to acknowledge the climate that you are wrong to say climate change isn't something we have to worry about. That these aren't that these are these aren't risks that we have to hedge against. So you're gonna to have to admit error and pretty big error, and you're gonna to have to say, you know what, Al Gore was right. Well, a lot of people on the right are just not inclined to do that. Second of all, yeah, on the right, opposition to tax increases has been so fundamentally ingrained in their psyche for so many decades now that they would prefer, in my and, and in fact, you can see it explicitly in the conversations I hear. Uh, from say, uh, the Americans for tax reform and Grover Norquist and organizations like that, they'd prefer a regulatory answer to a tax answer. If we're going to address climate change uh, it, because it's, well, it's not throwing tax on the American people. Well, of course, what they're missing is that regulations are taxes on the American people. They're just invisible taxes, right? You yeah. want taxes to be visible, right? You don't want them to be invisible. Um, so that's another reason that they, uh, they reject carbon taxes. And the third reason is just tribal animosity to environmentalists. I mean, as I was growing up, probably as you, I mean, I'm, I'm in my uh, mid fifties, so I'm probably older than you, but I was brought up to look at environment, at the environmental left as, you know, the antithesis of, uh, of Republican conservatism. Uh, they were against industrial civilization. They wanted to turn back the clock to some sort of pastoral utopia, uh, a world that looked like uh, Amish Pennsylvania was what they were aiming for. They were hostile to science. They were skeptical about capitalism. They had long opposed fossil fuels for any number of reasons. Uh, they hold dodgy opinions about science on other fronts. These aren't people that you're inclined to ever acknowledge were right about anything. Uh, and you also know that most of them are pretty hostile to free market capitalism. And so agreeing with that community that this particular concern that animates them is legitimate is an awful big leap for a lot of people on the right. And I think these are the three fundamental reasons why, uh, uh, oh, and then the fourth reason, of course, is that even if a carbon tax is your preferred answer, look, there's no getting around it. You're using government to act and intervene in the economy in a major way. And people on the right are not put on this earth to unleash government uh, to uh, put forward major programs to solve social problems. They're just not. So these are the four things that get in the way of conservatives and, and, and grappling realistically, in my opinion, with climate change. They're all big problems. I don't think any of them are showstoppers. And we had even more time on your podcast, I could walk you through why none of those arguments persuade me. But I think those are the four reasons why you you run into such opposition on the right with regards to climate change and carbon pricing.
2: Two more quick questions. One, I've been wondering as I've been listening to you and you say that a tax is the best way to account for the like the accurate price of what you're doing, basically. Well, it seems like the leading proponents of climate change policy, like mm, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, are saying they basically want The Green New Deal is basically socialism. They just want it full stop. And that seems to be the trend is getting government much, much, much more involved and into projects and things like that over just doing attacks. So are you concerned at all that that is what's going to happen that they're going to take the reins and any action that's going to be done on climate change is going to go way 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 beyond a carbon tax and like trample on people's rights which you obviously value
1: yeah i absolutely am concerned about that and if it plays out the right will have its own only itself to blame because liberals have been in favor of carbon taxes uh and carbon pricing for a long time uh when bernie sanders ran for president in 2016 Uh, and he was asked what we should do about climate change. He said we should have a carbon tax. Uh, In other words, the left used to be there. Uh, And in fact, carbon taxes and carbon pricing were Republican ideas before they were even leftist ideas. They came from Milton Friedman. If you go back and buy the book Free to Choose, uh, you'll find that there's a whole chapter about how to deal with pollution. And he says, look, to the extent to which we have pollution problems, the best way to handle them is to identify what the pollution problems are, quantify the damages caused by pollution,
2: you cut out there for another couple seconds
1: just optimally that. So this is this this carbon pricing comes from free market uh, libertarians and conservatives, but they did not embrace it after George Herbert Walker Bush left the White House because he used cap and trade to address uh, uh, acid rain problems. It was then embraced by the left. Uh, and but we're now to the point where climate change is becoming such an immediate problem. The people on the left have lost patience with something like carbon pricing. In other words, when you get really late in the day and you begin to enter into what they believe is an emergency situation, you can no longer, in their mind, trust the market to sort it out. Now you need government to act even more aggressively than before. So this is the real danger of conservative opposition to carbon taxes or cap and trade, because The window for market-oriented responses isn't going to be open forever. And there will come a time when the responses are going to be far more rushed, panicked, uh, emergency-driven, and they will be thus way more expensive and costly and damaging to free enterprise. So it's in the right's interest right now to take advantage of lingering support for carbon pricing, which is still there. Pete Buttigieg supports it. Uh, 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 Al Gore still supports it. It's his main response to climate change. Sheldon Whitehouse, Democratic senator from Rhode Island, he's probably the, the present Al Gore in the United States Senate. He is a firm proponent of carbon taxes is the main response. Uh, so the opportunity is still there. But five years from now, 10 years from now, if we haven't acted aggressively on climate change, I'm afraid that window is going to close and then we're going to have nothing but bad responses uh, on on the on the uh, table of options.
2: Speaking of limited time, if you had just a couple minutes with a conservative climate skeptic in front of you, what case would you put forward to begin to change their minds?
1: (laughs) Depends how much time I have have with said climate skeptic. If we're on an elevator ride, there is no time to move somebody's opinion on something as fundamental as this. Um, but I've had plenty of conversations with people uh, who are climate skeptics uh, in uh, explaining why uh, they should be less skeptical about climate action. And what usually uh, plays best is the you know the frank acknowledgement that the, your skepticism about climate. Change, I know, is not because you're stupid, and it's not because you're evil, and it's not because you don't care about your kids, and it's not because you don't trust experts and expertise, uh, and it's not because you can't do basic math, or you never took science classes, and it's not because you're bought and paid for, uh, and that's why you have that position. Because I used to have that position, too. I used to believe every single thing you're telling me. Hell, I wrote the talking points and I was on Fox and when the pages of the Wall Street Journal and National Review and on college campuses debating this, you know, 24-7. So I understand your arguments very well. And I understand why you find them persuasive. Let me explain why I lost faith. And then the kind of conversation which we've had on your podcast today is what I usually uh, move into. And depending upon how much time, uh, those are the arguments that I'm offering and they tend to work pretty well.
2: Excellent. Well, Jerry, thank you so much for joining me today. This has been such an interesting conversation. Thank you for indulging all of my follow-up questions. And it has been such a pleasure. I think that you have given me, certainly, and the listener at home, a lot to think about and compare with the previous episode that I mentioned uh, with Anthony Watts. So, and in terms of evaluating the platforms of the 2020 uh, Democratic presidential candidates. You can follow Jerry on Twitter at Jerry underscore J Taylor and find his work at the Niskanen Center. Go check it out. Also, yes, as I mentioned, if you're curious about the reverse 180, that is episode 17. And don't forget, you can call or text the flip phone at 323-999-1802 or you can flip out on me, try to flip my position, Or tell me about your own flip-flop, and I mean that in the most gracious way possible. That's 323-999-1802. And of course, you can follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram, at 180Cast. You can follow me at Georgie underscore Borman. Until next time, seek the truth, share your values, and listen with your heart and your mind. God bless. What I need, who have got to in the be. middle of the struggle, Lord let me see. Who I am, what I need, who have got Executive in the producer of the Kevin struggle, McCullough. Lord, Music by Kraft and